tip of the tongue, teeth of the lips. Good morning. Good morning, church. Sermon title today is Rise Up, Wise Up, Eyes Up. And I think we'll start in 1 Kings 10, so you can turn there if you'd like. Good morning to those who are here in the building. Uh, It's good to see uh, Matt Calk here is with us today. Been praying for you, brother. It's good to have you with us. And of course, to those joining you, uh, joining us, uh, those of you joining us online, we're blessed to be here together. I, I've got my water this time, a lot of it. I have, uh, I have my cough drops sent to me this week by a, a loyal congregant. Thanks, mom. So um, I did some digging through the closet this week. I had a chance to pull out some some old dusty stuff, and you know, I took a look at, to see if it was something worth keeping. And I'm not speaking metaphorically, I, I, I really did dig through one of our closets. Um, as you know, we're, we're in this series, Kingdom Promise, which is a series on the book of First Kings and the life of Israel uh, under the, the reign of King Solomon. And I remember that our founding pastor, Jason Poling, had preached on Solomon years ago when he took the better part of a year to preach through the Old Testament. I remembered it was during our theater days, and we moved to Stone Chapel in November of 2005, so that narrowed the search down to a few years. And it turns out it was the summer of 2004, another election year. New Hope was a little over a year old, and Jason made the exciting point that New Hope had started well. Throughout the Old Testament, there's these stories of, of individuals like Joseph and, and David and uh, sorry, Joseph and Daniel and, and others who are examples of, of people that we might like to be like when we grow up. Um, but Jason said, when we study Solomon, it's an interesting thing because here in Solomon we see a character who we don't want to be like when he grew up. Solomon started well. Even after a shaky rise to the throne that included this like godfather scene of, of the murder of all those who might challenge his rule, Solomon then he, he asked God for an understanding mind. He asked God for a, a listening heart that, that he might govern God's people well. I think that's one of the most incredible things about the story of Solomon, not just that he asked for an understanding mind, that he asked for wisdom, that's great, but that he acknowledged the people as God's people. That's the kind of leader I want to follow, you know? The kind of leader who knows that whatever power or authority that he or she has, ultimately that power is stewardship. Because they aren't your people, they aren't your students, they aren't your church members, they aren't your employees, and they aren't even your kids. They are God's. And he has given you the task of leading them in a way that glorifies God, not you. You see this in music a lot with like jam bands that feature certain instrumentalists. There might be like one guy who's like the leader of the band and and maybe he's there with his guitar or at his piano leading a song. And then at some point, even though his name might be on the marquee, like he he steps back and he he lets somebody else have the spotlight to to solo or sing. I think about uh, Chuck Lavelle playing uh, Clapton's Old Love. Like he just, he lets Chuck Lavelle just play as long as he wants. 
um, and solo over this time, and, and Clapton takes a back seat to Chuck. You see, it wasn't about him. It was always about the music. Um, and I think that that is what led to Solomon's downfall. He, he forgot about the music that Israel was supposed to be playing for the world. And instead, he just he started to crave the spotlight and his own selfish needs. We'll get to that in a moment. As we're called to pray for those in authority and leadership, I mean, let's pray that our leaders would be listeners that they would listen to the people and hear their voice in order to lead with integrity and justice and mer mercy. Of course, this morning we're, we're praying for our new president-elect. Regardless of politics, let the people of God pray for a, for a peaceful transition of power and the coming administration would, would listen to the people, that the coming administration would listen to the people, all the people, and promote a path forward of, of justice and mercy. See, Solomon began well. He received the thing that he asked for, wisdom and understanding, and he got what he didn't ask for and became internationally renowned for it. He got his wisdom and, and understanding and the fame and the fortune followed. And it's with that fame and fortune that we get what is probably one of Solomon's last good moments in the biblical narrative. There is an episode in, in 1 Kings chapter 10 where the queen of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. One of the first things we see in the text is the, is the reason why the queen of Sheba came. It says that she came after she had heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. She probably meant the construction of the temple and, and probably Solomon's palace. As we spoke of last week, um, that would have been quite a feat, right? It would, have been, it would have drawn some international attention. We're told that she came to Solomon with hard questions. Most likely here when we, when we, talk, uh, when we talk about the queen of Sheba, we're talking about the female ruler of, of what is now modern-day Yemen at the southern end of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, it's kind of a few weeks' journey north, hugging the eastern shore of the Red Sea from, from Israel. So the, the queen hears of Solomon, and she brings her entourage, along with all sorts of precious jewels and, and gold and camels and all, and who knows what else. And she enters Jerusalem with all its majesty, and here you have this, these two very wealthy and powerful groups coming together in contact with each other. She wanted to know if, if Solomon could be a trusted ally. She wanted to know what he thought about the issues of the day. Presumably, Israel had, had similar economic and, and military situation. And, and the queen of Sheba wanted to, to see it all firsthand and hear what Solomon had to say. Here, here's this wisdom that she had heard about. So 1 Kings uh, chapter 10. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon seeing the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord. 
it took her breath away. There was no more breath left in her. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I didn't believe the reports until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Behold, half of it isn't true. Um, Your wisdom and prosperity surpasses the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be, here's the really important part, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, he has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold. It's like four and a half tons of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And there's a few verses about the lumber that was brought in. And then in verse 13, And King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all that she desired. Whatever she asked besides was given her, uh, was, whatever, whatever she asked, besides what was given to her by her bounty of Solomon. So she turned and she went back to her own land with her servants. I think we have to recognize for now that the result of the queen's visit was that she praised Yahweh, the God of Israel. Evidently, there was something about all of this majesty that led the queen to connect it to God's glory. This is something that God's people have done throughout history, and they still do it today, from cathedrals to megachurches. There's nothing wrong with a little sizzle preceding the steak as long as the steak delivers. I mean, we're standing, I'm standing in a very ornate room with gorgeous windows and artwork on top of artwork. Everything about this room attempts to speak of the glory of God. And you'll see this kind of thing all over the world, right? As God's people have built rooms like this, even nicer than this one, far nicer than this one. In fact, if you come from a, from a lower tradition, though, like we do, you might start thinking to yourself that, well, we don't need a fancy room. We don't need, this, this, is, this is way too fancy for us. We just need a simple room. But, but the truth is that, that even in those circumstances, that doesn't mean that there isn't still the possibility of... Um, the wow, the, 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 the aesthetic importance. Worship spaces come in all shapes and sizes, but the successful ones, the ones that have effectively proclaimed the, gospels, the gospel, have taken steps to do something that created a compelling environment. It's hospitality. To use another music analogy, it's like the hook of a song that, that makes you want to listen to the rest of the album. Maybe it's a magnificent city to welcome an international entourage. Maybe it's beautiful architecture. Maybe it's just good coffee. Maybe it's a signage that speaks to a sense of justice. Maybe it's just good air conditioning. Regardless of what it is, it's, it's clear that God has used senses to grab our attention. The real question from there becomes whether or not there is really the substance to back it up. Or is it just superficial? Is there the substance that's actually there, or is there nothing really behind it? As you know, I've been meeting with, with the staff of our, our mother church, Grace Fellowship, for a few years now, and, and one of the things that they like to remind their staff is to deliver the wow. It's one of their six staff values. They repeatedly remind their staff that 
that we serve a God who makes people say, wow, and that excellence honors God and inspires people. Um, the details matter, and, and we can dedicate ourselves to the commitment of making tomorrow a little better than today. Not because we're phony, but because we're sincere. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. It's all about priorities, right? Work heartily for the Lord, not for men. That, that's the way it should be, right? God first, kingdom first. The thing is, when we do that, when we focus on God's kingdom first, we're reminded that the people are, in fact, God's people, and that God actually wants the best for them, and the people end up getting served far, far, far better than if you had just spent all of your time trying to please the people. It seemed like Solomon got that at the beginning. It appeared that, that all of his majesty actually was pointing towards God, and it also seemed that it was working. The queen of Sheba praised Yahweh. Israel was starting to actually do what it was meant to do, to be a blessing to the nations around them. And then things went from good to great. We're told later in the chapter that thus Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver, gold, garments of myrrh, sp spices, horses, mules, and, and so much year after year after year after year. It just goes on and on, talking about how Solomon grew in wealth and wisdom and seems like things couldn't get any better. And then everything fell apart. I love what, um, what Jason said in that sermon that I listened to this week, what he said about this Queen of Sheba episode. He said, the problem seems to have been verse 13, the end of verse 13. So she turned and went back to her own land with their servants. And you get this image of Solomon standing on the porch of this great palace, watching the Queen of Sheba leave, and that buzz was gone. An emptiness stirred inside, and he began to lose sight of the kingdom that was right in front of him. He began to lose sight of the mission. And the culprit in all of this, it's, it's not surprising. It's the product of misdirected sex, power, and money. What else would it be, right? We're told that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. The author of 1 Kings reminds us specifically that Israel had been commanded not to take foreign wives from the nations he had taken them from. The love of these wives led to the worship of false gods. It led to idolatry. He began to make allowances for these wives to worship their gods, and then we are told that Solomon worshipped them as well. In chapter 11, verse 6, So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. That's an interesting point, right? Mentioning David there. The Bible speaks of David being a man after God's own heart, but 
David was also a man who allowed sex, power, and money to get on the throne of his heart, if, if not the throne of Israel. Still, evidently, there was something about David that the Lord saw as worth celebrating. Apparently, the call was never about perfectionism. It was always about loyalty. Have a look. Turn your Bibles to to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. This is an excellent psalm, by the way, for uh, private prayer time. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners who will turn to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite, oh God, you will not despise. Humility, humility is the call. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, and the bulls will be offered on your altar. That's what it looks like to have your priorities straight. Tradition has it that that psalm was composed by King David after he had sent a man to his death in order that he might sleep with that man's wife. The prophet Nathan comes to David and calls him out on his sin. You know, I think too often we use the story of David and Bathsheba to scare single people away from premarital sex. It's far darker than that. David had plenty of other wives. So as much as this is a story about misplaced sexual desire, far more importantly, this is a story about the consequences of the abuse of power. David failed miserably as a king in that moment. He looked into the depth of his own soul and he saw emptiness. Yet here in Psalm 51, we see confession. We see repentance. We see turning towards God, not away from God. And David says, create in me a clean heart, 
O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I know I am a sinner. I know that I have sinned. I know if it's by my own efforts, if it's by my own effort, my own merit, I stand no chance. Lord, it's only by your grace. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. So there's certainly hope here. It's the hope that no matter how dark your past is, there is nothing that God cannot forgive. There is nothing that God cannot heal. There is nothing that God can't redeem. We serve a faithful God who loves you to death, even death on a cross. We're going to get back to that in a minute, but, but the crucial question here seems to be, are you a man after God's own heart, or are you trying to fill the emptiness with the cheap imitations of sex, power, and money? You want to know the truth? Sex, power, and money aren't evil in and of themselves. We did a sermon series years ago called Surrender, where we talked about godly expressions of sex, power, and money, godly expressions, expressions of, of human sexuality and influence and financial health. To make them the problem is to ignore the real problem of the human heart. You will make mistakes. Even as Solomon said it himself, all humanity sins. The question is, what do you do with that? Do you turn to God? Do you confess your sins? Do you ask for forgiveness as, a, as, as, as well as a better way forward? Or do you just keep returning to the pit you just keep returning to the sin over and over again, using it as a band-aid, hoping the bleeding of your soul will eventually stop. So Solomon fell. Along with Israel, with him, and in time, the entire nation, and then later, the entire nation was divided, became divided, and, and later, many of the people, they, they found themselves in exile and the city was a shadow of its former self. About a thousand years later, though, there's this rabbi that came along named Jesus. And he began to attract this abundance of followers. Crowds followed this guy everywhere. And I'm going somewhere with this. We're going to get back to Solomon and, and, and Queen of Sheba in a moment. But, but for now, turn, turn with me to, to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11. We're going to start at... Uh, at verse 29 of Luke 11, Luke says, When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, like the, when the crowds were increasing, this is what Jesus had to say when lots of people were around. This generation is an evil generation, for it seeks a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, you might say, hold on, I thought we were talking about Solomon, and then we were talking about Jesus, and now we're talking about Jonah, like, like Jonah and the whale? Yes, that's Jonah. And I'm going to get back to Jesus and Solomon in a bit. The thing is, the story of Jonah holds a special place in the Bible. It's a special kind of biblical literature. If you're not familiar, it's a story of a prophet named Jonah, who is called by God to go and preach God's message to the people of Nineveh, which is in modern-day Iraq. And the prophet hears the word of God and decides to flee the presence of the Lord. Good luck with that. By going in completely the wrong direction. 
Instead of going to Nineveh, instead he buys a boat ticket to Tarshish. That's a hard word to say, Tarshish. Maybe they make Worcestershire sauce in Tarshish. Um, anyway, he buys a ticket to Tarshish, which is Spain. On the way, God sends this violent storm, and the crew ends up casting lots to try to find out who's angered God to, that he sent this storm, and eventually it's discovered that it was Jonah. So they toss Jonah off the boat, and this giant fish eats him, and he ends up spending three days and nights in the belly of this fish before finally Jonah prays, and this fish vomits Jonah up out into dry land, and as VeggieTales says, our God is a God of second chances. So Jonah again hears God tell him, he says, okay, we're going to try this again. Jonah, go to Nineveh and declare the message of the Lord. And this time he goes. He gets there, and it is this majestic city. It's really something. We're told that it would be about three days to walk it from end to end. So Jonah gets in, gets about like a day in, and he really does the bare minimum. He stands in this town, he's all kind of grumpy, and he opens his mouth and he says, yet 14 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the whole town repents. He just says that in the town square, opens his mouth, yet 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. Just that little bit. And what happens? The whole city repents. We're told that the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast and everyone from the king on down placed their trust in God, even though they knew that God still might destroy them. But God sees their penitent hearts and he decides, I'm going to keep them alive and the city is saved. Good ending, right? Thing is, Jonah is ticked. He, he's so angry that he, he asked God to take his life. And like a stubborn child, he leaves and he sets up his booth outside of the city and the sun is beating down on him. So God grows this plant to kind of give him some shade. And Jonah's happy about this for a moment until this worm comes along and eats the plant so that he becomes depressed again. And the book of Jonah ends with the, the, the people of Nineveh having repented and the prophet Jonah, the prophet of God, sulking outside of the city, bickering with God because of a plant. It is all ridiculous. And it's supposed to be. Because a lot of Bible scholars will tell you that the reason why the book of Jonah is special is because it's a comedy. It's supposed to be funny. The whole thing is like a Mel Brooks movie. It's slapstick. It, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it doesn't still have stuff to teach us. It certainly does. The best comedies do. And a big lesson of it is that, that sometimes the thing that you've been looking for is right in front of you. Jonah was so blinded by his hatred for Nineveh that he failed to see that God was actually working. And the even more funny thing is that God actually still ended up working through Jonah because here we are talking about him thousands of years later. Now, back to Jesus, who has these crowds following him, you'll remember. And they're following him in great numbers, and this is the kind of thing that Jesus said when a lot of crowds were following him, when, he, when, when a lot of people were in earshot. They're all asking for a sign. Have you ever asked God for a sign? Have you ever done the thing where, where like you pick up the Bible and you kind of spin it and you, and you open it up with your eyes closed and point to a verse and you're expecting to hear like a message from God? It's okay, we've all done that. 
No, it doesn't really work that way. The funny thing about it, though, is that the Bible actually is a divine message from God. And God wants you to read it, and He wants you to apply it to your life. So it's like you're asking for a sign from a sign. This crowd of people were following Jesus around asking for a sign when the sign had been with them for some time now. They watched him heal. They heard him teach. They saw who he was. This crowd is asking for a sign, and Jesus is like, really? When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It it seeks a sign, but, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Son of Man is Jesus' way of referencing himself. In other words, the people are going to repent. You just watch what I'm going to do with this crowd of nobodies. The question is whether you're following the one true king or are you following Jonah the prophet? Are you like Jonah the prophet, sulking in the desert because things didn't go the way that you had planned? And then Jesus wraps a little bit, and it comes full circle back to the queen of Sheba while mentioning Jonah again. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The phrase, rise up at the judgment, it's a phrase, it's a a reference to the resurrection. You're asking for a sign that has been given with you the whole time, and pretty soon, guys, You're going to see the one true king, the king who was what David and Solomon had no chance of being. You're going to see the prophet um, that that, that Jonah had no chance of being. You're going to see that king show you what power really looks like when he goes to the cross and defeats death itself through the resurrection. And when that happens, the funniest thing is going to happen. The most unlikely people in the world are going to see with clarity what God is doing. Sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes and many of the most likely people, the religious people, they're going to be left sulking in the desert. The queen of Sheba saw the glory of Israel in in her heyday and gave that glory right back to God. But Solomon couldn't hear it because he was just looking for the next thing. The people of Nineveh heard the message of God's displeasure and repented of their ways, but Jonah couldn't hear it because he wanted fire to rain down on those pagans. I know this sermon has been all over the place, but here's the point. I think that sometimes we can be so blinded by what we expect God to do that we miss the thing that He's actually doing that has been right in front of our faces the whole time. Jesus says, no one lights a lamp and then hides it in a drawer. It's put on a lampstand so that those entering the room have light to see where they're going. Your eye is a lamp lighting up your whole body. If you live wide-eyed in wonder and believe, your body fills up with life. But if you live all squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is just a, a dank cellar. 
Keep your eyes open, your lamp burning so that you don't get musty and murky. Keep your life as well lighted as your best lighted room. Keep your eye open to what God is doing. If you're looking for the fruit, look to love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. That's how you know the fruit of the Holy Spirit. See the world in light of the cross and the empty tomb. God is about the business of reconciling this world back to himself. He's about the business of calling humanity, calling creation back to harmony with himself. And that means that we, the church, we have every reason to hope. But he's not going to do it on on your terms. He's going to do it on his terms. See, the stories of Solomon and and Jonah, they're cautionary tales. And and let us not forget for a moment that, that we see ourselves in them. Our eyes can be so blinded because of pride and vanity and lust and greed and hatred and distrust. And then we end up attempting to to kind of interpret the world through those things. And those things aren't the light. Those things aren't light at all. Focusing on those things is focusing on the temporary kingdom that may be right in in the here and now. Um, Instead, that's not our call, though. Our call is to live into the kingdom of promise. The kingdom that declares that the, that the king, the one true king, died for you and then lived for you as he welcomes you into his kingdom with open arms. It's that king, King Jesus, that we need to confess as Lord. We confess him as a savior because he is the only one worthy. He's the only one worthy. Father, thank you so much for, um, for our church. I thank you that you have called us to, um, to glorify you um, by what we are doing um, here, here in, our, in, our, in, this, in this place. But Lord, help us to keep always focused on your kingdom. Help us to, to, to take um, this, this story of, of, of Solomon, this person who, um, who started well, and help us to, to learn from that and also help us to learn from the mistakes that it would be to see the world in light of pride and vanity and lust. Lord, help us to be about your mission. Help us to be about this mission of going and making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Help us to to live into the joy of your kingdom. Lord, help us to be your people. Um, Cleanse us, Lord. Create in us uh, clean hearts. Renew a right spirit within us because this was never about our perfections. This was never about us um, pretending that we're not sinners and keeping our sin behind in closed doors. No, Lord, we're called to confess our sins and turn to you And then you, as your word tells us, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the life. That's what it means to follow um, the, the Lord Jesus. Lord, we praise you. We love you, Father. And we ask that you would guide us into a better tomorrow. In Christ's name.